This is from Emily Post's Etiquette, 1965, you say? We're going to talk about the blind date. The blind date is a peculiarly peculiarly American variation of the formal introduction, which in this case is made indirectly and for the express purpose of arranging a date. It is sometimes arranged by a third person, such as Mrs. Town, who thinks that Gloria Gorgeous and Harry Handsome would enjoy each other's company. She first first makes sure that Harry would be interested in calling Gloria. Then she asks Gloria if she would like to meet an attractive man. Only after both parties have indicated they are willing to be so introduced should Mrs. Town give Gloria's telephone number to Harry. The date may also be arranged by a girl who is asked for a date by a boy she does not know well or does not wish to go out with alone. She might... What? (laughs) She might say... Jane Ratsey is spending the night with me, so I would love to go out with you if you have a friend who would like to take her out and will make it a foursome. Most will opt for the Miss Town option, who the <laughs> the matchmaker, as we all understood it. Yeah, the idea that I don't want to go out with this guy alone, so I'm going <laughs> to... Like, if you don't want to go out with somebody alone... That like, feels like a big red flag, <laughs> but hey, what do I know? Well, there's a Seinfeld episode about the importance of the double date. It's a buffer to allow the date to see you being funny with your friends. It's a window yeah. into. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. The most frequent type of blind date, however, occur- occurs when a host or hostess arranges a date for his or her overnight guest. A girl may call a good friend and say, Tom... Sally, who was my roommate at college, is spending the weekend with me, and I think you would like her. So how about taking her to a movie with Jim and me on a Saturday night? Dates arranged in any of these ways should not be expected to result in anything more than a pleasant evening. Now that is reasonable advice. Even close friends do not always agree on whom they like or dislike, and while Cindy may think Charlie is divine, her friend Jane may well be bored to death in his company. So make the best of a blind date, and no matter what you may think to yourself, act as if you are enjoying every minute. Cindy should really do some introspection on how she feels about Divine George. Yeah, like maybe Cindy. Maybe she doesn't. Like, does she really want to see one of her friends dating? Right, Divine. Yeah. Sculpture of God. After all, it is probably better than sitting at home with a book. And whether he is enchanting or not, you may meet more attractive men through your new acquaintance. <laughs> oh, my God. I definitely have both left and been left during a date. Damn. Yeah. I mean, it is definitely better to be the one leaving. Versus the one sitting there wondering, how long am I supposed to wait here for? Did this person die? Is this a mostly harmless situation? So, hey, how about I go first this time? You better go first this time. I have more photos. If you look real close, this to me looks like a very earlier version of a Molly Ringwald or something like that. Like, this looks like a fun girl, right? A fun gal. So this I found on this site called treasuredlives.wordpress.com where the the writer of this is Joe Hanneman from Milwaukee. 
it's a really interesting site that profiles kind of forgotten murders and people and really deep dives beyond like the regular stories you find um, to kind of get at the heart of who they were. And it's a lot of things from the 20s and 30s and stuff like that. So this woman's name is Lillian G. Grafe. So Lillian G. Grafe's infectious smile and carefree demeanor belied the troubles she'd seen in her 19 years. Her 47-year-old mother, Mary, died of tuberculosis in January 1922 when Lillian was just 14. Her sister, Adeline, died in July 1921 of the same disease. The family's oldest girl, Marie, became a surrogate mother to the rest of the children for a number of years until she, too, was diagnosed with TB and forced into a sanitarium. (laughs) Like, are you serious? So Lillian was a graduate of S.S. Peter and Paul Catholic School. She had a good job at a Third Street candy shop where she was a popular employee. Her best friend was Frances Platt. From the days they played with dolls together to more recent times when they borrowed each other's clothes, they were inseparable friends. They went to dances and movies and spent countless hours at the Platt residence. Went on double dates with handsome Harry. <laughs> Since the death of Lillian's mother, the Platt residence was a second home to Lillian. By all outward appearances, Lillian had a happy life. If Lillian had flaws behind her smile and merry laugh, she was a bit too trusting and kept close to the vest with her romantic interests. Well, you're going to die when you hear what the next segment of this is. She was a Facebook post come to life. If she had any flaws, it was that she loved too much and was too good of a person the next segment on the story about lillian is called fill in on blind date mildred grafe wasn't feeling up to going out on the evening of october 11th 1927 so this is one of the siblings of lillian she'd made a date with a young man she only knew as jack who'd given her a ride to a girlfriend's house downtown on October 4th, so like seven days before. Mildred felt like canceling, but Lillian volunteered to go on her behalf. Wow. It would be fun, she reasoned. Besides, Mildred spoke of how friendly Jack had been on their short drive. Lillian got ready for the blind date. How old is Mildred? Um, How old is Jack, I guess I should be asking. I don't know that yet and mildred's age isn't in here but i am certain that she's younger than lillian who was probably her sister in her 19 years um i'm guessing that maybe 17 or something mildred's a younger sister yeah okay it's not like oh jack like i can't make it but my younger sister i mean does it matter if it's younger or older um, I was worried about like a, a predatory element. Mm. If like she's in her mid twenties and like offers up her er, nineteen er, year old sister's like, I'd like to go on a date. Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't know. Jackson, fine to me. I was, you know, it's hard to tell because it's so dark in the car ride home. But <laughs> I mean, it does feel. Like... He smoked American Spirit, so you know he's cool. I guess I I didn't know that there was any time uh, where that would be considered normal to like. Hey, sis, do you want to go on this date? No, I don't. I I was thinking it was funny, though, that the original date, 
like some guy gave her a short ride home and like she's like well he seemed nice so i'm gonna go on a date with him i know that his first name is jack it's like oh times are different if somebody were to tell me now that they met somebody and they had given them a brief ride home and they knew their first name i would be like you are yeah people meet like that going to today die still but yeah mildred was not like i see captain right right yeah the last name is important so Lillian wore a rose jersey dress, light stockings, and black patent Wait, leather is shoes. Is his last name going to be The Ripper? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I was not expecting that. Um, stay tuned. Okay. <laughs> well, just listen to what she's wearing and don't be like, why are you telling me all this? For outerwear, she had a pink felt hat and a light brown plaid jacket with a fur collar. She wore a favorite brooch and a prized watch. On her left hand, she had a silver class ring from SS Peter and Paul School. When a car horn sounded outside the house, Lillian dashed out the door into a light drizzle. It was 7.30 p.m. Mildred watched through the window as her baby... Oh, it's her baby sister. It is... There's only one reason a little accessory details like that get mentioned in stories like this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, baby sister got into what appeared to be a Ford coupe. It was the last time Lillian's family saw her alive. She never returned home from the date. After Lillian was missing for four days, the Milwaukee Journal ran a page four story with her description and details of the blind date with Jack. It wasn't until November 5th that there was a break in the disappearance. John Anderson, a highway construction crewman from Pewaukee in Waukesha County, was inspecting the Blue Mound Road Bridge over the Fox River. He spotted a woman's body snagged on wires from a collapsed barbed wire fence at the river's edge. It was Lillian. It was evident to police who responded that the young woman had been savagely beaten before being dumped into the river. So here is... a news story from the family having to identify uh, just a second hey jim look is that a pale blue overcoat with a fur collar so that's the siblings fresh from sad task of identifying their dead so that's from a news story after her body was found where what was is this was this her up in the corner like yeah off the, the bridge, bridge. it looks pretty cool i mean you know cool like, it's, it's informative, and it's a drawing of a bridge. I'm guessing... I would guess she was thrown off the bridge because it's just over it, mm -hmm. down in some, like, yeah, post with barbed wire. Yeah. So there's this pathologist from Milwaukee County that gets involved. His name is Dr. Edward Milosilovich, and he found that Lillian was strangled to death with her own scarf. She had been beaten in the head with a metal bar, causing four skull fractures, broken fingers, bruises, and scratches showed she tried valiantly to fend off the attack. Her lungs were dry, so she was dead when dumped into the river. Based on her stomach contents and the rates of digestion, it was believed she died about 9.30 p.m. on October 11th, two hours after departing on the date. When she was found, her brooch, watch, and hat were missing. 
This pathologist theorized that it was the work of a sadist, likely to be closer to middle age than early 20s. So this is going to be quite a journey. You're only at the beginning, and I hope you're ready for this. Here is, just so you can see, here's the pathologist, okay? Uh. I will share these photos for everybody to see, but he's, he's, he's got sort of a, a, a droopy dog face, which isn't his fault. It doesn't help that the drawing <laughs> that he's being featured in here has him offering up a, a hatchet. Yeah. That's not a great look for him. And then there is a story. This is a a news article that talked about the lost trinkets being, you know, mm-hmm. like a, a clue. Mildred provided a description of Jack as best as she could from the car ride. Okay, she I was going to say the next chapter is about Mildred, right? You know, how weird would it be? And then she could have been the, the one to have died? Maybe. Well, I don't know. I don't know why this... We don't know what happened. Really, a lot of this is... <laughs> In Mildred's lap. Not that she killed her, but... Well, Mildred's going to play a very large, bizarre role in this whole thing. So she gives this description of Jack. Dark chestnut hair, very white complexion, about 5 foot 8, 160 pounds. Fuckable. Right? I mean, she was going to go on a date. She was in a car with him for a few minutes and was like... Yeah. He wore a dark suit. His eyes were large and his hands were very white and soft. That part is not a uh, fuckable. Like you, you've long said, you won't fuck a soft-handed man. Long said it. You've, yeah, you better be careful on bridges if you're with a soft-handed man. That's what I always say. Thus began perhaps the largest manhunt in Wisconsin history. The net of justice last night was closing slowly, but apparently inevitably, upon the slayer of Lillian Grafe. The Milwaukee Sentinel predicted on November 7th. It's a confident headline when you have so little information. <laughs> Look out, chestnut-haired men. We're coming for you. Well, and I suppose also there is this um, need to assure the public that this is going to be solved. Don't you worry. Like, we are so close to this already. Police began looking for Jack and an older man who frequented the 3rd Street candy store where Lillian worked. The older man, described by newsmen as elderly, but was likely around 45, drove a Cadillac, and he made frequent date requests of Lillian. So Lillian worked at a candy store, which sounds like an amazing job during that period of time. Yeah. This older guy would come in all the time. He would ask her for dates. This becomes more disturbing. Probably the sort of job where you're the target of a lot of shitty candy puns from 45-year-old men. Yeah. So while this is all happening, okay, the eldest grave child, Marie, was in critical condition. Why? At the Wisconsin Tuberculosis Sanitarium (laughs) (laughs) near Wales in Waukesha County. When her brother Edward brought the news of Lillian's murder, she collapsed. So that photo I showed you is of those three going to identify the body. They drove to the Blue Mound Road bridge under which the body was found. 
A parade of curiosity seekers had already begun to visit the site, watched carefully by police. So that pathologist that I talked about, based on input from him, and remember how he said that this guy was likely to be closer to middle-aged than early 20s, the pathologist is doing like what seems to be some early form of like profiling. And Mildred's description is certainly not of the middle-aged guy who came to the candy store all the time, right? Mildred was this young, you know, this was a young, pleasant-looking young man, blah, blah, blah. It was not a 45-year-old man, which she probably knew who right. the candy store guy was. From my perspective here so far, like, these are unrelated. Jack was supposed to go on a date with a different sister, which would seem very unrelated to the guy who hangs around the candy shop where this girl works. Well, but then you have the pathologist saying, this is the work of a sadist. This guy is middle-aged. This guy who came to the candy store, they dub him Cadillac Daddy. He often visited the candy shop where Lillian was a clerk. The man usually selected a cigar, then stood and chatted a while to ensure that Lillian would wait on him. He spoke of his fishing expeditions to Michigan, his planned hunting trip for that fall. On at least two occasions, Lillian accompanied him for a ride in his Cadillac. Cadillac Daddy did not return for a visit to the candy shop ever again after she disappeared on October 11th. So there's a friend of Lillian's who tells the police that this Cadillac Daddy wore a pair of unusual brown Oxford shoes with three brass buckles down the side and three straps across the instep instead of laces. It was a unique enough shoe to send detectives to stores and factories across Milwaukee and Racine in search of an owner. It turns out that no more than 40 or 50 pairs of similar shoes were said to exist in the United States. The young woman said she had accompanied Lillian and Cadillac Daddy on two drives. His vehicle was dark blue or black with gray upholstery. On both occasions, the last week of August, and again a week later, the car picked them up at or near the Grafe residence, she said. So, are you with me? Cadillac Daddy knew where she lived? Yeah. I'd like to think that he stops in like Tuesday, Thursday... That leaves a big enough gap that he could have seen she was missing in the paper. Thinks, well, my my girl isn't there. I don't need to go get my cigars from the candy store anymore. We're still treating this as two separate guys. Yeah. (laughs) All right. That's all right. The investigation swung wildly into conjecture in the early days of the case. On November 8th, newspapers told of the theory that Lillian was killed on North Avenue, probably by someone tied to the Chicago underworld in Cicero, Illinois. A call received at the Grafe home a few days after Lillian disappeared told of a man coming to Milwaukee from Cicero, quote, with a load. Police took that to mean a load of bootleg liquor. Ironically, probably one of the least concerning things that could be behind a statement like, hey, I'm coming for your daughter and I'm bringing a load. (laughs) I'm the Cadillac Daddy. (laughs) People call me the candy store creeper, but what I put on my license plate was Cadillac Daddy. I'd really like that one to stick. I knew that when there was the nickname that you would really enjoy it. So police also believed that a quarrel between occupants of two automobiles on North Avenue on the night of October 11th could be tied to the murder. 
killer hated family lured Lillian Grafe to her death, read the November 8th headline in the Milwaukee Sentinel. In the end, though, the story was just another theory that went nowhere. We are no nearer a solution of the mystery than we were the day the girl's body was found, Milwaukee Police Captain Harry McCrory said on November 10th. We have exhausted every avenue and are up against a wall. I mean, this is just a few days. I mean, <laughs> like, dude. I, I, I appreciate the bold swings they're taking. Like, we got 40 guys with weird shoes. Don't get me wrong. They're all creepy in their own way, but I don't think they're connected. We're going to try some other things. I mean, where's the perseverance here, man? This is just a few days. We've exhausted. We're done. The morning of November 9th. So the day after her funeral is when he says that they've exhausted every avenue. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> Lillian's funeral mass was held at Peter and Paul Catholic Church on North Kramer Street. Her casket was carried to the grave with seven white chrysanthemums placed on top by her father and siblings. So a coroner's jury met in Waukesha on Saturday, November 12th. But they were unable to render a verdict beyond saying Lillian met death at the hands of some persons unknown. I want to know more about coroner's juries. <sighs> How long was that a thing? So I think the coroner's jury was like this collective of coroners who met to discuss the case to try and see if like it was like the okay. um, early task forces like a meeting of the minds sure i can appreciate how difficult the job of coroner probably is around this time yeah if it's like a, a grand council meeting of men of death who are like yeah okay, i thought it was just like well we got 11 of her peers uh yeah and one corner just like well uh there's an abrasion here yeah um, she probably had it coming like i don't know what you would be able to surmise other than their verdict about meeting the death at a hand of some person's unknown. I mean, yeah, it's either person's known or unknown. <laughs> it's like 50-50. <laughs> Agnes Long testified that she saw a young woman resembling Lillian outside the 3rd Street candy store where the murder victim worked at about 8.15 p.m. on October 11th. It was raining hard, Long said, and the woman was across the street and the woman was across the street, had one foot on the running board of a Ford coupe. Milwaukee County Sheriff Charles Shalitz found a witness who said he saw Lillian inside the candy store at about 8.30 p.m., about an hour before she was killed. So, if we go to the beginning, at 7.30, she hops into a car for a date. So why are people seeing her an hour later at the candy store? Connected to a Ford. <laughs> Police were sure they had the drop on Cadillac Daddy in late November 27, 1927. A tip to the Milwaukee Sentinel led Sheriff Shallots and deputies to Chicago, sure that they had the location of the middle-aged man of mystery. Two undercover cops walking into a bar somewhere in inner city Chicago and smoky jazz music and I'm looking for a Cadillac daddy. I'm in the know. Look at my shoes. <laughs> Are those straps I see? <laughs> I, I, I just got to be along for the ride because a lot of this point to point is not making sense to me. Well, they're clinging on to anything. That much is clear. <laughs> That's all you have to know. 
Before the suspect was confronted or apprehended, the Sentinel published front page details of a ruse police planned to use to trap him. The police said Cadillac Daddy would be asked to answer charges that he is habitually an annoyer of young girls, specifically that he tried to lure a North Division high school girl just two days after Lillian disappeared. When the suspect was finally captured, however, it turned out he was not Cadillac Daddy. The tip was a dud, and the story reporting such in the Sentinel was relegated to page 7. Well, police spent much of their effort in trying to find the dark Ford Coupe driven by the elusive Jack. More than 50 officers began a canvas of the city in an effort to track movements of anyone fitting Jack's description or anyone who drove a Ford Coupe. By February 1928, this effort expanded into an unheard-of degree. Every owner of a Ford Coupe in several counties was compelled to come to Milwaukee Police Headquarters and be viewed by Mildred Grafe, the only person who could identify Jack. On the first night alone, Mildred viewed some 300 Ford owners at the Central Police Station. This continued for weeks until 7,000 people had been lined up, and he was not one of them. No shit. (laughs) The combination of apparent incompetence and apparent authority of this police department to to send out an APB to anybody who owns a Ford Coupe, come let a woman look at them to decide if if you're a murderer. (laughs) And also, like, he wasn't there. I'm shocked. (laughs) Yeah, that's the... That's the... Yeah! I mean, there have been efforts like this before. Ted Bundy had a gold VW. Now, of course, you could look up databases at that point, you know. But the part where the murderer would come with his... Why would that happen? Why would anybody come? I suppose it was a way to... to clear your name if you're driving a car like that by the way we skipped over something that i guess isn't relevant to the story but the police's plan when they went to chicago was to find cadillac daddy and interrogate him with the question hey are you harassing young women and annoy as if the nickname cadillac daddy didn't already make that clear but then the Geraldo Rivera of this age printed the story like, police plan to ask Cadillac Daddy if he creeps on young girls. Yeah. <laughs> Print it, boys. So many missteps. Yeah. <laughs> Another spectacular murder case crossed paths with the Grafe investigation. The brutal killing of Emma Greenwald near Dousman, Wisconsin on November 8th, 1927, was originally thought the work of the same man or men who murdered Grafe. However, Greenwald's husband shortly confessed to hiring a man to strangle his wife. Arthur Betzold, dubbed, quote, the choker, (laughs) during the trial, was paid just $3 for the crime by Elvin Greenwald. Once Betzold was at the Waupon prison, he calls Sheriff Shalitz and says he loaned his Ford Coupe to a former Milwaukee bus driver, so he could take Lillian for a ride on October 11th. Now living in St. Paul, Minnesota, the man was arrested, but shortly proved to police he had nothing to do with the grave killing. <laughs> Who loaned the car? The choker? Yeah. The choker. 
the choker loan. The hired man. The hired man. The $3 choker. He, in an unrelated killing, loaned his car to a bus driver because the bus driver was going on a date with a now-murdered girl. So he could take Lillian for a ride on October 11th. I mean, the only thing that could complete this is if Cadillac Daddy comes back into the picture somehow and tosses a cigar butt into the end of the story. The sheriff then hauled in a chop suey salesman from Detroit (laughs) (laughs) for questioning when it was discovered he had news clippings about the grave murder. He said he was an acquaintance of Catherine Packard who worked with Lillian at the candy store. She sent him the news clippings, he said. In August 1928, Milwaukee police rookie Benjamin Eckert was questioned about his brag to friends that for $10,000, he could name Grafe's killer for police. Eckert was already in jail, charged with shooting and bashing in the head of his girlfriend. At the time of Lillian's murder, Eckert worked in an automotive garage at 24th Street and Lisbon Avenue, not far from the Grafe home. He was known to drive one of the garage owner's Ford Coupes. This this is fucking... (laughs) He had a reputation for picking up girls on North Avenue. Eckert told the police that he had nothing to do with Lillian's death. He was simply bragging to friends. He smugly predicted he would not go to prison for Hurtigan's death. However, when a jury in October 1928 took less than 20 minutes to convict him of killing his girlfriend, he cried like a baby. The Grafe murder case was quickly growing cold. The Sentinel dubbed the Grafe killing the most puzzling crime in Milwaukee history. More than two years went by with no major leads. Then, in February 1931, a suspected triple bigamist made major headlines as the next suspect in Lillian's death. Jack Glenn Schoen Goodwin was taken by police to the Mirdale Sanatorium in Wauwatosa, so Mildred Grafe Scooball, <laughs> now married, and a tuberculosis patient. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, God bless uh, James Scooball for marrying into the tuberculosis family. It's like, oh, she has her taste. <laughs> It's weird that we just sent him to Kansas. Like, it seems so contagious and so deadly. Oh, half the people just have tuberculosis back then and... Yeah. Well, the idea was the climate... It's the dry air. (laughs) Yes. So, we've got a guy who's a suspected triple bigamist. His name is... What's a bigamist? Having more than one wife. A... A triple uh, uh, bigamist. His name is Jack. The police bring him face to face with Mildred. She calls him a dead ringer for the elusive Jack who gave her her ride and took Lillian on a date. The self-assured suspect merely smiled and said, I never knew Lillian. I never saw you before. But if I had known you and if I had taken one ride with you, I can assure you that we would have taken many more. Standard triple bigamist. <laughs> Police begin. <laughs> Police start tracking the life of this guy who was wanted in Kansas City and Salt Lake as a possible bigamist. It turned out he was also married in 
Milwaukee to a woman named Marie Siegel. He was the first of thousands of suspects that Mildred thought resembled Jack. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> he was nothing but smiles anytime the murder was discussed. Why should I want to kill any girl? Yes, detectives. I can knock him dead without killing him. <laughs> this has turned from a murder mystery to like a, a Wes Anderson movie. I can knock him dead without killing them. Mildred, the tuberculosis suffering, almost murdered date from years ago is now like, he did it. He did it. He did it. <laughs> Me? I'm a triple bigamist. That's an optimist for those of you keeping track at home. <laughs> That's not even the end of this quote. Why should I want to kill any girly ass detectives? I can knock them dead without killing them. At least that's what seems to be the problem right now. Too many women. Goodwin's nauseating bravado aside, he was cleared within a day. Mildred could not conclusively say he was Jack. It turns out he was in Kansas City at the time of the murder. So the biggest lead in more than three years fizzled out. Dead to rights, she said. I've got an engagement ring in my pocket. What are you doing after you get out of here? <laughs> Police were still working active leads as late as 1938, but the case of Lillian Grief remains unsolved. It continued to take its toll on the Grief family. The father, Fred, turned to alcohol. After numerous arrests for public drunkenness, he drew a one-year sentence in the Milwaukee House of Correction. He said continual brooding over Lillian's death, along with the TB illness, <laughs> and his family drove him to drink. On one occasion, he was arrested after arguing loudly with his children over who should receive proceeds of Lillian's life insurance. <laughs> Police chased every lead for more than 10 years, but ended up no closer to a solution than on day one in November 1927. They really didn't know if Lillian stayed with Jack the entire evening, or if she went off with Cadillac Daddy, or someone else entirely. Perhaps she and Jack were both murdered, although no evidence came forth to suggest this. Her strangulation, sexual assault, and severe beating were similar to the killings of Helen Lane, Julie Twardowski, Joyce Roberts, Edna Mueller, and Mae Doe between 1924 and 1937. Like the case of Lillian Grafe, those murders were also never solved. I thought there was going to be a conclusive bow on this but but no. that's a lot of killers in her orbit a lot of suspicious people yeah <laughs> all around her and for all of our laughing about the way the police handled the case there was a lot of work put into this yeah usually they interview a boyfriend who like knows the mayor yeah so then like it's unsolved so they, they had a lot of meat to to chew on yeah, I mean, and now you can probably understand why they latched onto this guy who visited her at the candy store, because it was like, okay, this is a middle-aged guy who would come in all the time to see this particular woman who happens to be the one murdered. And you, you never get the answers you want, but before Mildred starts just like, they start bringing the carousel of men to her, like, okay, she got a ride home from this guy. What is all the context around that night? Jack didn't just come down out of the clouds with his Ford Coupe and, like, give her a ride home. Right. Like, how did she meet him? It feels like an excellent lesson in, you know, okay, if you 
accept a ride from somebody and then a date and then you can't remember that person well enough to not select a thousand people but it was a different time i'm sure she had a lot of guilt the dad's like spiraling and yeah you're mildred and you probably want to like get out of there to this uh yeah it is such a weird set of circumstances by the way if you go to in and out uh it's not on the menu it's a secret menu item if you ask for a triple bigamist that's the the four by four with cheese on everything This is a short one, and it has to do with weird uh, Wisconsin cultural traditions bleeding into law. Um, and this was sent to us by David. David Bauer sent us this. Cool. Thanks, the David. The title of the article he sent is called Murder in the Name of Honor. That's a Rage Against the Machine song. <laughs> On August 31st, 1928, a husband returned home unexpectedly to find his wife in bed with a male house guest. He shot them both, killing the woman and critically injuring the lodger. The shooter, Louis Marvin Payne, a Georgia mill worker, had moved his family to Milwaukee a month before the shooting. Payne proclaimed his innocence under a quote, the unwritten law, meaning he felt his actions were justified because the victims violated the sanctity of his marriage. In this, Payne had an unlikely ally. The father of the wife traveled from Athens, Georgia, to appeal for her killer's freedom. The father, Shuff Hicks Parker, told reporters the fatal shooting of his daughter, Frances, was within any husband's right, given the circumstances. Wow. A Milwaukee Sentinel reporter witnessed the meeting between the dead woman's father and the killer, quote, The two Southerners meeting attested their sincere affection. They gripped hands silently. Tears welled in Payne's eyes, but Parker hastened to drawl. Quote, you done just right, Marvin. I'm with you. The sister of the deceased, also a resident of Athens, Georgia, sent Payne a letter stating neither she nor the late woman's mother placed any blame on him, closing by echoing her father's remark, you did just right. (sighs) Okay. The Southerners felt that this about wrapped it up. Authorities disagreed <laughs> and charged Payne with first-degree murder. Yeah, I like how they're like, well, we all... We're cool with it. I don't know what the problem is. I mean, if a family is cool with the murder of a fa- another family member, then there's no need for the police to be involved. This is the unwritten rule. Right. <laughs> That's the unwritten rule behind the unwritten rule is that if... The family doesn't care that you're dead. Right. <laughs> a panel of 12 men. <laughs> Payne had instructed his attorney to dismiss all women during the jury selection process, would decide if the unwritten law trumped Wisconsin's statutes. That was a smart move, I guess. <laughs> Fellas. <laughs> we've all been there. <laughs> Lewis Marvin Payne grew up poor and illiterate. He never attended school. His father died when he was nine. A year later, the boy went to work in the cotton mills of Georgia. He served in the U.S. Army during World War I, and then afterwards he married Frances. The couple had three children. It was a troubled marriage. At one point, Frances abandoned her family to live with another man. 
she returned, only to leave a second time. Feeling as though his life had hit rock bottom, Payne turned to his faith. So why didn't he kill those other guys? It wasn't in his bed. You know, right. it's different. Yeah. This is God's bed. It's his bed. Unwritten rule! Unwritten rule! <laughs> it hurts! Uh, Payne testified at his trial, quote, The whole world looked like it was against me, and I got into this religious work to do good for others. I took her back. She promised that she would stay true to me, he said. <laughs> I took her back. Fool me once, shame on me. Shame on you. Whatever. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times. Shame on God. <laughs> the unwritten rule comes into play. God will back me up on this. I took her back because I loved her and I wanted the children to have a mother's love and care. And I didn't want to be alone with children. <laughs> I'll just rewrite that. The reunited family moved to Milwaukee. Payne found work soliciting funds for an obscure charitable organization called the, the Samar- Bill Foundation. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it was called the Samaritan Army. <laughs> okay, that's pretty good too. It's the it's the the B movie uh, Transformers. We're good you, you people fi- <laughs> everywhere. I'm a Samaritan. You're a Samaritan. Samaritan. Give a dollar. <laughs> so he worked for these guys. He struggled to support his family on a percentage of the donations he collected. Payne testified that he made every effort to please his wife. It's gonna get weird. I'm not saying you're going to take his side by the end. I mean, I've already decided that this is weird because they moved, and in a month's time they had a house guest. What happens here? Well, uh, a socialite (laughs) like this. Payne testified he made every effort to please his wife. Indeed, it came out during the trial that three children slept on the floor due to lack of furniture, but Mrs. Payne's closet contained no less than 40 dresses. Okay. The, the basement flat on Hanover Street was a crowded dwelling. In addition to the couple and their three young boys, the occupants included Mrs. Payne's brother. They also took in a family friend from Georgia, Fate Palfrey, as a boarder, along with Palfrey's nephew. Was Fate a woman or a man? Fate was a man. Okay. As Fate. it so often is. <laughs> Payne left home that August day, 1928, intending to travel to Pewaukee with a fellow fundraiser. However, he discovered that his co-worker was ill and the day's plans fell through. Payne returned home to find his children playing outside and his wife in bed with fate, Palfrey. Payne told the court he found Palfrey and his wife hugged up and that she was trying to get loose from the border. Quote, I thought loose he had... Loose from the border? The border as in he was him. Oh, I see. <laughs> I gotta get loose from the that's a, border that's of the a country, state. country song title. I'm loose from, from the, the border. <laughs> Quote, I thought he had forced her in there and that he would assault her and kill us both, said Payne. Not true, Fate Palfrey said when he took the stand. He said Mrs. Payne entered his room that morning to tell him breakfast was ready. She sat on the edge of his bed to chat. She pulled the blanket over herself as she talked of plans to scrub <laughs> two rooms and go to the store. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. Let me pull up the blankets and tell you about I'm going to go to the store. Quote, I reckon I didn't have no right to tell her to get out of the bed. It was her house, Palfrey told the court. Suddenly, the couple became aware that Payne was in the room with them. He gazed wordlessly at the two and then vanished. 
They heard Payne rummaging through his dresser and then heard the unmistakable sound of a pistol being cocked. Leaping from the bed, they rushed for the doorway. A shot fired, and Frances Payne fell with a 32 caliber bullet in her chest. The coroner's report noted that she was fully clothed. She was even wearing shoes. So she was okay, okay? You don't need to take your clothes off to get hugged up. <laughs> While the two men battled for control of the pistol through the rooms of the flat and out into the backyard, Frances Payne bled to death on the floor of the basement flat. Oh, no. She was 26 years old. Leo Matt was working in a factory across the street. When he saw the struggle in front of the house, Matt hurried outside to break up the fight. As he pulled the men apart, Payne fired a bullet into Palfrey's abdomen and then swung the gun in Matt's direction. Matt dove behind a parked car. At that moment, a passerby, university student John Cruft, slipped up behind Payne and pinned his arms. Matt, picking himself off the ground, took the revolver away from Payne. According to court testimony, Payne, quote, addressed a remark at Cruft, which was not complimentary. In response, Cruft punched Payne in the jaw, ending the fight. <laughs> the jury also heard from eight-year-old Louis Payne Jr., who told the court he had, a few days before the shooting, entered the home and found his mother and Palfrey lying on a cot kissing each other. When they saw him, the boy said both his mother and Palfrey threatened him. Quote, they said if I told my dad, they would burn my tongue out. Oh. The morning of the shooting, the mother sent her children, Lewis, age eight, Preston, six, and Curtis, four, outside to play without their breakfast. In closing arguments, Payne's defense attorneys told jurors Lewis Payne's rigid moral code and an outraged sense of honor led him to act in accord with the unwritten law of the South. The real villain, they insisted, was Fate Palfrey. He crawled into Payne's home like a snake. Payne had forgiven his wife for her unfaithfulness before. He was trying to keep his little home together and was succeeding until the snake crawled into it. This line of reasoning incensed the prosecutor. When it was his turn to speak, George B. Skogmo, special assistant attorney, told jurors, This man comes here for his day in court and asks for a fair trial. He has had that. But did he give that little 93-pound wife a fair trial? She never had a chance to be heard. This man denied her that right. He took the law into his own hands and meted out punishment as he saw fit. Payne is a fine example of Southern chivalry. This man from the state of night riders and lynchers, the prosecutor told the jury. We in Wisconsin have not yet reached the point where we inflict capital punishment upon a woman who forgets her marriage vows. Any thoughts before I read you the verdict? <laughs> the verdict? Guilty. On October 18th, 1928, after five hours of deliberation, the Milwaukee jury found Payne guilty of second-degree murder, evincing a depraved mind regardless of human life but without premeditated design. He was sentenced to 14 years. His children were sent to a state detention home, and plans were made to eventually send the boys to live with family in Georgia. In shaping Payne's unwritten law defense, his attorney, William Rubin, was repeating an argument he had made in defending an equally sensational Milwaukee murder six years prior. In 1922, Joseph Bransk, a 32-year-old shoe repairman, shot and killed August Schreiber while the latter was at work in a ditch on Oklahoma Avenue. The shooting took place in broad daylight and was witnessed by numerous people. Bransk, the father of three small children, entered a plea of temporary insanity caused by the wrecking of his home. 
He had told police he killed Schreiber because the man was carrying on an affair with his wife. He had even complained to the district attorney, but no action was taken since he was unable to prove an offense had been committed. After several months, Bransk tracked down Schreiber and shot him repeatedly. This is back in the day when you could go to the district attorney when your wife cheated on you. <laughs> yeah. The unwritten law defense was used at his murder trial, a move that attracted wide notoriety at the time. Bransk was convicted of a lesser offense, served one year, and returned home. Perhaps there was an unstated sympathy for these self-proclaimed upholders of unwritten law because Louis Marvin Payne also served a short sentence. He was paroled at Christmas 1933, having served just five years of his 14-year sentence. However, Payne did not remain a free man for long. He met a woman, Mrs. Helfrick, who was in the midst of divorcing her husband. Enraged when she rejected his advances, Payne stabbed Mrs. Helfrick and then turned the knife on himself. Both recovered from their injuries, and Payne returned to Waupon State Penitentiary to serve the remainder of his sentence. The unwritten law defense is a thing of the past. In 1929, the state Supreme Court ruled it has no legal standing in Wisconsin. The ruling was handed down as part of a decision upholding Payne's conviction for slaying his wife. I mean, kudos to Wisconsin, but it keeps being referenced as like, you know, the unwritten law of the South. So I'm guessing this happened a lot in the South. Yeah. Wow. It is a bold thing to do if you're, uh... <laughs> Hi, Lewis, I'm your defense attorney. We're gonna go with the unwritten law defense. I did this five years ago. It didn't work. But listen, listen, hey, stay with me. Yeah. Stay with me. <laughs> yeah. I'm undecided... Because, of course, what she was doing or not doing, I don't have any judgments on that. So I'm not sure because I find it equally likely that this woman could have kept sending her kids outside and been doing this, as I do likely that the dad. Yeah, I don't, they, they I brought don't a have... family friend up from Georgia to hang out in their tiny little like basement flat. Yeah, I am sorry to say that the fact that there were kids sleeping on the floor and yet she had 40 dresses is lingering in my mind in a way that I wish it weren't because you don't want to judge people on their behavior. If that's a true fact, however... Your Honor, bring in exhibit 1 through 40. Yeah, but then of course that's also something that can be used by the husband because then also i'm thinking to myself well you're one half of this yeah parenthood how old are the dresses did she just buy them all okay the more i'm thinking about it the more i'm thinking like oh that's a very convenient thing maybe don't say. shine a light on the fact that neither one of you could get furniture for your children <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah i don't know but then again he got out after a year and stabbed a woman yes yeah, so then right <laughs> yeah oh, so man, I, what? <laughs> yeah, so like I I guess the dresses thing doesn't bother me so much. And she wasn't even divorced yet. He was the homewrecker. Yeah. Probably why he turned the knife on himself. Alright, well uh thanks for listening and we'll be back uh in two weeks. Yeah. In two weeks. It's the unwritten law. Bye. Bye. <laughs>